Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. It's Wednesday, July the 22nd, and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. This is usually the time of year when the world of politics starts winding down for a few weeks, but not much sign of that right now, I think. Among the live subjects this week, the hard-fought EU budgetary deal agreed in Brussels on Monday, the government's impending rescue package for an economy struck low by COVID-19, deepening concerns about what the situation will be for students who are returning to schools and colleges in the autumn, and the not insignificant question of the Green Party leadership contest, the result of which is imminent. We are going to try to get through at least some of that with our political editor, Pat Leahy. Hi, Pat. Morning, Hugh. And a new addition to our politics team, Jack Horgan-Jones. Hi, Jack. Morning, Hugh. Good to have you on board. Um, I'm going to turn, first of all, to the subject which seems to have been preoccupying most people over the last 24 hours, which is this question of a of a green list of countries to which people may travel without the restrictions of self-isolation when they return from those countries in, in Ireland. The whole thing seemed to turn into a bit of a mess over the last few days. Yeah, so the the, the whole idea of some form of um, less onerous restriction on travel is actually, it's not new uh, in that it stretches back to, to something the previous government wanted to introduce. This idea of air bridges is actually not even a particularly Irish invention. It's something that uh, other countries around the world have been instituting, whereby you kind of match up your the rate of progression of the disease basically with another jurisdiction overseas and based on that you kind of you initiate a a less restrictive kind of travel regime around it now it sounds simple in practice but it effectively the government has managed to make the most kind of enormous mess of it and not not just in the last couple of days but in the days leading up to it i mean the, the message they would have wanted to press here would have been, on the one hand, the disease is getting progressively under control in Ireland, and we are moving towards a kind of semi-normalised situation, which is important from a kind of outwards-looking economic messaging point of view. You know, Ireland is in favour of the the free movement of of goods, services, people, money, um, and you know, we we need we need to maintain connectivity and all that other stuff. But they would have also wanted to maintain this idea that you know public health was the prime organizing principle and the prime motivating factor behind everything that they were doing. And in the course of affairs, due to the confusion about how the green list system is actually going to operate, they've managed to totally lose track of the messaging on both those things. Like they have a green list now consisting of countries that either we don't fly to or you wouldn't want to go to. Um, and the and you ask any passing public health official, you know, should we be instituting this in any way, shape or form? And they would say on the balance of things, no. And we should also be doing much harder things like mandatory quarantine for people who arrive. So the the, the, the message, the, the the whole policy really has, has gotten away from them. And on top of that, it's exposed a, 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 a cleavage between uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, thanks to Leo Varadkar's um, intervention yesterday, 
when he said effectively that there was no point in introducing a green list unless you were going to also change some of the travel advice, some of the specific travel advice that related to the uh, to the 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 countries on that list. And it all led to this marathon cabinet meeting last night when they announced the list of 15 countries and to, to you know, profound indifference of nearly everyone watching um, and ongoing confusion because, you know, there's those questions also about, you know, how um, onerous the, the restrictions are going to be. You know, this this list is going to be reviewed every two weeks. So it's possibly something that, you know, may, may actually not be killed off yet and may come back to, to bite them again in the future. I mean, Pat, I suppose, you know, one of the points Jack is making there, you can see how this kind of structure and approach is going to be or might well be useful in the months and perhaps the years ahead as we're dealing in a more long-term way with travel between between different countries. But it was a real mess yesterday. Alan Kelly, uh, the Labour leader, jumped on it, saying he was wondering who the Taoiseach was because of the comments which the Taunashta had made outside the doll. Um, I was listening to Simon Coveney wriggling like a worm in a hook on Morning Ireland this morning, trying to answer questions about what happens if you go to Gibraltar or San Marino or Monaco or one of those countries which barely have airports at all. So you need to travel through another country to get to them in the first place. Um, I don't know if you're planning your holidays in Greenland, but I am not um, I mean, the bottom line is, isn't it, that non-essential travel continues to be not recommended. And the only difference between the countries on this list and the countries that are not on this list is you are not required to self-isolate for 14 days coming into the country from those countries. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it, it's not that confusing in, in that it is possible to understand what the government are saying with regard to its travel advice and this list of, uh, of, of countries. But I'm not sure why they're doing it. And several people that I'd spoken to in government over the previous few days weren't sure either. And there was a strong argument put in government, which I think Leo Varadkar recognised in his unusual comments yesterday, and I'll I'll come to those in a minute. Um, But his suggestion was, if your travel advice isn't changing, then why do this green list at all? Eliminating, uh, Eliminating the requirement to quarantine, which let us not forget, is not really effectively policed at all uh, from this list of countries is not going to kickstart the Irish tourist uh, industry. I mean, the big tourist markets, the UK, the US, they're still, much of continental Europe, they are still going to be required to quarantine for 14 days, even though, as I say, this isn't effectively policed or, insofar as I can see, uh, implemented. So I don't understand really why the government uh, is doing this if it wishes to retain its pretty strict uh, pretty strict regulations and restrictions on, uh, on travel, which it says uh, it's going to do. There are a couple of other things, I think, to be said uh, for it. One is that a late night cabinet meeting with an uncertain outcome is rarely a sign of uh, a harmonious government with a forward looking uh, agenda. It seems to me that it sends out all the wrong signals uh, about this government, which has yet really to truly find its feet 
and to articulate both a common purpose and an ability to move forward together towards that common purpose. Uh, the second thing I think to say is related to that, and it's that the intervention of Leo Varadkar yesterday, in advance of uh, a cabinet, presumably a cabinet discussion on this issue and a decision for a cabinet minister to lay out his position and misgivings about the previous behaviour of the government, which is what I think he was doing, talking about mixed messages, um, registers to me some questions about the coherence uh, of that government. Um, to summarise, I, I don't really think the government can keep going uh, like this with um you know, with this sort of lack of coherence uh, and that I, I I think it needs to um needs to get its stuff together uh, on this or it will damage its authority on this subject and uh it, it, it will also increase the strains and tensions which apparently already exist between its constituent parts. Yeah, just to follow up with, with you on that, Pat, um, I was actually in Dublin Airport on Sunday and the place is like a morgue. There's very few people coming through. Indeed, there were far more staff than there were um, people travelling. Um, so it seems to me this is not, the, the matter itself is not a matter of huge urgency. There are not people flooding into the country or flooding out of the country for that matter right now. So the greater concern is the ability of the government, this more complex government arrangement now, this three-party coalition, to take the more complex challenges which we are now faced with at this stage of the pandemic and to deal with them in a coherent way. And the signs aren't good. Is there an actual policy difference here? Is Fine Gael adopting a more small L liberal um, approach to measures and Fianna Fáil taking a more cautious or conservative approach? I think broadly speaking, yeah, that is true. There are Fine Gael ministers who are more cautious, but the Taoiseach, the former Taoiseach, and now Tonish, the Minister of Business, Leo Varadkar, is not amongst uh, is not amongst them. Um, there are Fianna Fáil ministers who are uh, a little more relaxed about it, but they don't include, as far as I can see, the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, nor the Taoiseach, uh, who are, as you would probably expect new ministers to be, are quite cautious uh, on uh, on the matter. The reopening and the accelerated reopening was one of the final things that Fine Gael did when it was in charge of the government. Now it is sharing that authority in government and there is clearly, I think, and, and you know, people at the centre of government have confirmed this to me, there is a, a difference between uh, the two parties. That is, that is not necessarily an insurmountable difficulty as the government goes forward. There were differences in the last cabinet as well between whatever you want to call them, the hawks and the uh, and the doves or the, the cautious and the slightly more uh, liberal in, uh, in their approach. What is important, though, is that once it decides, and in fact, before it decides, really, that the government speaks with one voice and with a uh, and to a clear agenda, and I don't think you could fairly say that that's been happening over recent days. I wonder, Jack, does this 
bit of a mess actually relate to the fact that the negotiations in Brussels where Miguel Martin was for for longer than expected over the course of a long weekend and very tortuous negotiations which we're going to go into in a moment did that maybe just throw the throw the planned schedule for this week and I don't know if it's a question of eye off the ball but he's certainly his attention was diverted elsewhere ah it it, it did and it didn't like I mean from a kind of comms point of view if you were working in in government you'd be looking at this week and saying right okay Monday we're going to have the um the stimulus plan announcement and and then shortly after that we'll have the the green list and it's all going to go swimmingly and then obviously you have the the kind of mega um summit in Brussels which keeps me all over there until until early this week you know so that kind of throws that out the window but like I don't think you can you can blame the logistical overspill of your of your man having to spend a few extra days um over at the commission you know I don't think that can carry all the blame for this um like at at the end of the day what's going to be the key message that everyone takes out of this it's going to be that the government through a series of missteps has sowed more confusion on an issue that tangibly impacts the lives of voters and they they're going to look back and they're going to say right okay we're three or four weeks into the into the lifetime of this government now we've had like the Cromwell cabinet we've had Cowngate and now we've had this this travel issue i mean about the only in inverted commas, when the government has had so far has been Apple. And that's the one that they've had absolutely precisely nothing to do with because it was in the hands of, of lawyers and judges in Brussels. So, you know, I think I think this this plays into this into into a central theme which is emerging from this government that while it's not kind of teetering on the bridge of collapse or anything like that, it's not doing a very good job. And it increases the pressure on um, on senior cabinet ministers and on Michal Martin to deliver a win, to, to, to do something on something visible and tangible that impacts people's lives quite quickly. You know, I, I would suggest maybe something on insurance where there was a high powered meeting of senior ministers last week would be a good candidate or, or something like childcare, you know, because at the moment they look to be kind of floundering and, and they're, they're facing into a remarkably difficult series of events, you know, not, not just, you know, how to manage the, the, the pandemic, but also how to reopen schools, how to reopen non-COVID care in hospitals. So like now is the time very much to, to get the act together and to show uh, very clearly and very concretely that the act is together. Although, Pat, it is arguable that the government had had a win of sorts this weekend. I mean, and it is arguable how much input it had into that win in the fact that a deal was agreed in Brussels for the EU budget for the next seven years, which means a sort of a, at the very least, a level of stability is assured in European politics and European finances over the next while and the markets and, and, and all of that. And also, it's a really significant moment, not necessarily because of the amount of money that's been agreed, but because of the, uh, the move finally, which has been called for for many years by some people, from the EU's uh, not just being a setting monetary policy, but setting budgetary policy as well, and actually uh, giving grants to member states. Yeah, I'd go along with a lot of that. I think that the agreement in Brussels is, by some distance, the most important event of, uh, of the week. It may turn out to be the most important uh, event politically of the year. It's a step change for the EU to raise common debt um, combined with the departure of the British uh, from the EU. Um, I think there is the possibility of uh, significantly greater integration underpinned by 
fiscal integration over the uh, over the future. That may bring Ireland in directions, particularly with relation to taxation, that we find significantly uncomfortable. But I think that is likely to be the direction of travel because of the agreement reached uh, this week. Another way of looking at it is that if you thought about the consequences of not reaching an agreement are... Um, are, are, are of a meaningless fudge this week. I think they would possibly uh, have been ruinous in the medium term uh, for the whole EU project. So the, I think it's hard to play down the significance and we have a number of pieces in today's paper discussing it. I think it's hard to play down the, the significance of, um, of the agreement reached this week. For Ireland's point of view, um, I think the we report on this in this morning's paper, the the resources that will come to Ireland are, are not all that significant. It's 1.3 billion. Now, there will be additions to that. There's a special Brexit fund of, uh, of 5 billion, much of which ministers and officials hope uh, will end up in Ireland. And there's a couple of other uh, funds that Ireland can potentially tap. And it should be, bear in mind that that 1.3 billion is out of 70% of the, uh, of the total rather than 100% of the total. And it's for 20, 2021, 2022. There may be further funding available in 2023. But not to get bogged down in the, uh, in the detail of that, I think the important thing uh, for Ireland is the, uh, is the bigger picture. And that is the direction of uh, of the EU. And I think that has taken a decisive turn this week. I mean, Ireland is and will continue to be a net contributor as one of the richer members of the EU, Jack. I mean, a lot of reports today and yesterday following the deal um, point to the fact that, you know, if the EU is now going to be uh, dispersing money on this kind of scale, it also needs to raise money uh, on a scale. So there are initial discussions that are going to take a while to see what they're going to look like about whether there'll be EU-wide taxes. I saw mention of a tax on, on plastics, for example, or something that would be of more concern to any Irish government, a digital tax. Yeah, um, yeah, it's the kind of, uh, it's the bogeyman, isn't it? Taxation re-enters the room. Um this is interesting and, and, and it harks back to the Apple case, right? Because had we lost the Apple case and, and been forced to appeal it again, it would have been another kind of string to the bow of the argument that Ireland is a, is an international tax vagabond, you know, and that we need to have manners put on us and that any and all uh, measures that might be deployed in order to do that uh, to Ireland and to a few other uh, people in the rogues gallery like Luxembourg and, and and the Dutch and so on would would be legitimate. And I think then you might see a kind of um, a, a no holds barred policy approach over in Brussels and you would see all sorts of nasty things like the CCCTB and, and, and other acronyms reemerging, um, which which frankly, uh, you know, people on Marion Street are terrified of because it has the capacity not only to decimate our tax base, but also undermine that, that kind of FDI proposition. And um, because because we won, like it, it has bought us some some breathing room and um, it has also exhausted potentially one of the main tools that the European Commission had to come after and um, to after tax, quote unquote, rogue states, which is to use competition law that no long that no longer looks like something they're going to they're going to be able to use fruitfully. And um, does it mean that the war is over? Absolutely. Absolutely not. I mean, the direction of travel on this is is more than clear. 
Um, and there will be more efforts. In fact, there already was one launched last week. Uh, there will be more efforts launched by Brussels to kind of combat multinational tax evasion. And, and we are a cog in that wheel, as we well know. Um, the, the question is whether Ireland can be successful in its policy on this matter. Uh, successful in the future in its policy on this matter, which has been kind of to kill these these issues with kindness, to to take part in the multilateral agendas, particularly at a global level through the OECD against tax planning, but in doing so to use that as a kind of cover and say, well, you know, we're 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 a team player and we're moving towards this, but it can only be done done on a global scale, and therefore this very good and very harmful idea that you're peddling right now, you know, that's that's terrible. That's just unilateral action. That's not collegiate, and 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 you know, would you ever go away and put that back in the box? And um, so I I think that the direction of travel is absolutely clear. Um, but we have a better chance of our strategy of of kind of delaying, slowing things down, but not being seen to be a, 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 a total blocker of these efforts, succeeding in the medium term, long term, we are going to have to accept that international taxation is changing. And with that, I think that will um, that will mean a kind of deeper strategic rethink about industrial policy and perhaps uh, a, a nuts and bolts rethink about tax revenues and what we might do if even to a kind of small to medium percentage, some of those corporation tax revenues evaporate. And that's something that we might, or certainly I would hope that we would see in around the kind of launch of the national economic plan um, around the time of the budget, which is the last and and, and most kind of uh, long-term part of the COVID response strategy. So be expecting, or at least hoping to see something in that then. Just to come in on on, on the points, points that Jack was uh, making there. Um, I think he's right that there is and it is the thing that Pascal Donoghue has often referred to that uh, keeps him awake at, uh, at, at night is the possibility of sudden or otherwise changes in how multinational corporations pay their taxes. Um, clearly, Ireland's been a huge beneficiary in the way they have arranged their tax affairs over the last few decades. But that is changing, as uh, as Jack has outlined. And it is changing at a time when one of the effects of the pandemic and the state's response to the pandemic is going to be a public desire for a bigger state. So aside altogether from the immediate impacts this year and next of paying for uh, paying for the costs of the crisis, so paying for the, uh, you know, the, the welfare costs and the health costs. It seems to me that there will be one of the legacies of the pandemic will be of a, a bigger state, that is to say, a, a health service that um, is better prepared for these sort of things and therefore costs more, a welfare, uh, a welfare system that is able to handle a large number of long term unemployed or medium term unemployed people as we seem to be faced with um, as the uh, as the crisis recedes. So there will be a demand for a bigger state, therefore a more expensive state and one that requires greater levels of taxation from wherever they come into the future. And if that is happening at the same time that corporation tax receipts, which have been bolstering the exchequer right through this uh, crisis, notwithstanding the huge costs that have also been appended from the crisis, then I think this government and future governments are going to have some, you know, they're going to have some very difficult circles to square. One point to add about the the significance of the the EU deal, though, I think, is that uh, there there are essentially two parts to it. People are talking about the one point eight, uh, one point eight trillion, but 
the greater part of that is just the EU's budget for the next seven years, into which Ireland's contributions will increase uh, in uh, assuming our GDP uh, continues to increase. And into that, Ireland is now a net contributor. Um, the other part of it, which is the special pandemic part, that's the 750 billion fund. That actually won't cost us anything, at least in the uh, at least in the short term, because it will be uh, it will be financed by borrowing done jointly by the uh, by the member states. Now, over time, that debt, of course, will have to be refinanced and serviced. But for now, that is something pretty approaching to free money. I was going to say, I'm conscious that we, and by we, we I often mean I in this instance, tend to very quickly default to talking about the kind of the parish pump elements of uh, of what happen, what happens at these grand summits in the EU. And of course, they are vitally important, as you've just described. But there's also, we are all members of the EU, and this is a really significant change to the nature of that entity, it seems to me. It moves it um, to some degree closer to being recognisably having the powers that we associate with with a nation state. And within that, that's going to have effects on everything that you guys have just been talking about in terms of fiscal policy and taxation policy. Uh, it seems to me to be the first real expression of a post-UK uh, EU. I see Bridget Laffin in today's Irish Times suggesting that this would have been vetoed by the UK had they had they still been in there. There's the unresolved question, deliberately unresolved, of what to happen about creeping authoritarianism in certain uh, Eastern EU countries, and that's going to form a huge part of EU politics over the next while. I mean, is it a step change in that kind of way, you know, the kind of thing that only happens every decade or decade and a half in the in the long, tortuous history of the common market, the EC and the EU? I think it is. I think it's a very big move. I mean, it has popularly been touted as the EU's Hamilton moment, which, you know, is the the time that the EU became uh, the subject of uh, of a hit musical, and um, we're still waiting for the hit musical. You might be waiting. Uh, I suspect I've attended many summits in the past, and it is hard to think of anything uh, further from a Broadway musical. Um, h- uh, however, I-, I think if you step back, and you know, one of the jobs that we always have to do when interpreting politics, I think, is to try and separate, you know the daily and the weekly and the ephemeral from the truly significant, you know, what to try and figure out what are the things that will we will still consider important when looking back uh, at the end of the year, say. And I think this is one of those moments. The EU progresses forward in two ways, slowly and incrementally, and then in big jumps like the single market and the single currency. And I think this is likely to be a move forward towards greater integration on a par with the creation of the single, the single market through the single, uh, single European Act, through the single, uh, single currency. There are, of course, there are lots of pitfalls ahead and there are lots of ways that this could come apart. The difficulty in putting together the deal over recent days is testament uh, is testament to that. But um, I think the important thing is the agreement was reached. The Franco-German motor appears to be running again. Um, 
and it is propelling the EU forward in uh, an integrationist direction that I think is uh, is significantly assisted by this move and is probably um, irrevocable now. I mean, what's even more interesting, you know, in, in, in given what Pat has just said, is the fact that this has occurred at a moment in Europe's political history when the whole idea of the European Union, the whole idea of ever closer union has been kind of fundamentally challenged, not only by the emergence of Eurosceptic blocks within domestic uh, pol- politics around the EU, but also in some instances in the emergence of, of you know, Eurosceptic governments or uh, governments which include Eurosceptic parties. You know, so it, it is it is slightly baffling in some ways that they've managed to get this away and I think that speaks to, to a wider truth about the kind of the profound power of crisis. You know, if, if you know, if, if crisis presents on the one hand remarkable uh, human suffering and, 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 and death tolls and so on, it also presents a, a chance to achieve really profound and lasting um, political, economic and so on reforms within um, and across uh, different jurisdictions, and I think that's that's what we're seeing right now. And if you look back at, at often often when um, really meaningful reforms have been achieved, it is in the wake of 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 crises or traumas that that you know populations that have changed the way populations might might look at current affairs, might look at politics, and might look at the entities that govern them. You know, that's very true. I think it's also important to point out that these changes will have to be. You know, it's not just a question of 27 leaders coming into a room and making a deal and that uh, uh, and that's that. They have to be worked and implemented and they have to gain the democratic assent of the electorates in all of these 27 states. Not that people will be voting on this uh, in a deal in a plebiscite or anything like that. But they'll all be facing elections sooner or later. And so you look at, you know, there's an election in Holland uh, next year um, in which Eurosceptic parties will be criticising uh, this deal and possibly promising to uh, to back out of it. There will be, uh, I think, ground zero for the future of the European project along these lines. Does it continue along the lines of the weekend or does it go into reverse? Would be the French presidential election in uh, in 2022. If Marine Le Pen is elected in that, I suspect it's, you know, not just full-scale reversal on these changes agreed at the weekend, uh, but ultimately possibly a, a time bomb at this very heart of the EU uh, as a project. So, you know, there are very significant political challenges for the uh, for the governments and the parties in member states uh, who have agreed this deal to secure the assent of their electorates for it. And, um, and that, I suspect, will be an ongoing battle for all of them. I mean, speaking of crisis and our own uh, reactions to crisis here, we're still waiting on the full unveiling, announcement, reveal, however you describe it, with this major government package of support for uh, the parts of the economy affected by by COVID-19. Do we know when it's due? Thursday, Friday? Will we definitely see it this week? I, I think we'll see it this week, yeah. Um, there was a meeting of the, the Cabinet subcommittee that is kind of 
quietly progressing this plan yesterday and and I think it it needs to be signed off. Not so quietly sometimes, but go on. Not so quietly sometimes, but it needs to be signed off by a full meeting in cabinet. So I I think either either Thursday or Friday we will see it. And 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 look, I mean this this compared to its its stablemate, the green list, it's been a, a comparatively stress free um, and controversy free emergence into the world. Um, and and you know I think that there there is plenty. Uh, in this package, there will be in this package that that people will be relatively pleased about. You know, a lot of it does kind of boil down to to, to free money, which people tend to like. Um, and we know the broad outline of it. The credit guarantee scheme, two billion fund, has already been announced. So there's going to be uh, improved and expanded reopening grants for business businesses. There's going to be some kind of green element around around retrofit. Um, there's this staycation voucher as well, which is is not only potentially free money for businesses, but also free money for people, which people like. Uh, and there will be an extension of the of the rates waiver and probably something around apprenticeships as well, which will kind of dovetail with the pandemic unemployment unemployment payment winding down over time. The idea being that people who report on this enhanced welfare payment will. Um, kind of transition if they can't find full-time employment into some kind of enhanced state state training scheme and, and that may be focused um, particularly on, on helping out sectors like the arts which have been you know utterly starved not only of income in the immediate sense but also of, of, of a business case in the medium sense um, so yeah it, it, it's been it's been relatively smooth but you know there is also the, the possibility that you know this thing can only disappoint in some ways, um, there, if, for example, it turned out that it would be more difficult than originally envisaged in getting this government cash onto the balance sheets of businesses, I think that would be very problematic. And there has already been instances in, in, in the initial incarnation of the credit guarantee scheme and, and the reopening grants where, you know, because it was funneled through local authorities, it, it seemed to be slow or officious or or bureaucratic and and really this is the kind of big bazooka and it needs to make its way onto those balance sheets very quickly because obviously a lot of a lot of businesses are are facing you know fundamental uh, existential issues about whether they're going to whether they're going to be here in a couple of weeks and um, there's also this question of of a, of a vac cut which was kind of doing the rounds a few weeks ago and and certainly seems to have stepped into the background perhaps to be replaced by some kind of you know uh, some kind of vat goodies delivered through the staycation voucher like a vac cut is always it's always called for by you know the publicans and the restaurateurs and the hoteliers but it's always really strongly resisted by the mandarins in the department of finance because they absolutely hate deploying tools like this because it's very hard to push back in the bag and they would also argue that there's more efficient ways of getting cash into the business sector and um, nonetheless if, the, if that doesn't materialize because a similar one has materialized in the uk i think you'll get the usual storm and drang from from the businesses and and, and that'll be a kind of a, a minor controversy that the government will have to will have to look after and um, but it, overall you know i think it'll be seven billion worth of free or free-ish money and, and there's not a huge amount for people to object to about that so long as it makes its way from the coffers of the government into their pocketbooks uh, relatively untrammeled. Yeah, Pat? Yeah, I think the government really needs this to land well. Now, I understand that the some of the division at, uh, at Cabinet was not just over, uh, or certainly at Cabinet level, not just over the, the green list yesterday that there is some divisions uh, over the, the stimulus package uh, as well. But I think um, I think politically the government cannot afford to have uh, a repeat of the um, 
of the messing of recent days. It needs this to land well and catapult it into the August break from whence it needs to come out with a plan to open the schools in September. If it does that, then I think, you know, it is set fair for uh, to agree a budget uh, in the autumn and deal with whatever comes out of Brexit. But if it doesn't, if this doesn't land well, and if, there doesn't, if the government doesn't go on to come out with a viable plan for opening the schools nearly all the time uh, in September, then I think we will find ourselves with a government that is entirely embattled come the autumn. Let me ask you about the schools, Jack, because Pat talks there about a plan for the schools. It's only, we're only five weeks away from when schools are supposed to be going back. There is, as lots of people are increasingly pointing out, including Fintan O'Toole yesterday in the Irish Times, and lots of other people as well, there is no sign of a plan. The brand new minister, uh, new TD, Norma Foley, one of the more surprising appointments by Micheál Martin. She stepped into the shoes of Joe McHugh, whose performance was not particularly highly regarded either. Things are not looking good at the moment in that department. And certainly I sense a rising level of anxiety about what plans, if any, are in place for schools. Yeah, I mean, the the, the schools issue, so there's this kind of trope uh, trotted out, you know, we have a plan for reopening the pubs, we don't have a plan for reopening the schools. I I, I think that 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 cuts through. Um, But I think one of the reasons that we don't have a plan for reopening the schools is that it's, it's, it's a particularly kind of wicked problem. You know, no matter which way you turn, more problems present themselves. Um, and it's going to need a fairly substantial monetary solution on top of everything else. Um, because like talking to, to people who were in a meeting um, with Norma Foley yesterday, there seemed to be some suggestion that, you know, at the moment schools are being asked to do everything that is easily within their gift and power to increase space. And, you know, that that extended to the removal of cabinets in classrooms. And I mean, that's, you know, just so woefully underpowered a solution to the scale of the problem that it, 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 it beggars belief. So they need they need an enormous um, statement here. They need an enormous um, plan. And they also need to do it soon. Like, I think they I think that in addition, actually, to. Um, to the, the the stimulus plan landing well, I think they need to offer a, a a view on the reopening of schools before they break up for August. Uh, that entails a a big sum of money and also entails a credible plan on how they're going to do it. Because you know they they break up for August and and the dog goes into recess and so on. But schools are supposed to come back in September. This is not a faraway problem. This is a very much here and now problem and and on top of that while norma foley is is regarded as as you know a, a clever personable and and capable operator she, you cannot get away from the fact that she is a first time td that this time a couple of months ago she was on kerry county council and she's been put into a remarkably difficult a remarkably difficult uh, department at the best of times facing you know seismic challenges at the worst of times which this is um, you know, and, and, and we haven't heard a huge amount from her apart from, I think, what could fairly be described as, as a kind of car crash interview in the Sunday Independent a couple of weeks ago. Um, there was a controversy last week in the Doll where she kind of said one thing in response to a direct question from Ian Reardon and then, you know, said another thing in a press release shortly thereafter. Apparently the, that policy change wasn't briefed out to stakeholders who were very upset about it. And now she kind of seems to be avoiding avoiding the Doll floor in general. She met with opposition spokespeople yesterday rather than rather than answer 
answer questions on the floor of the doll. So, you know, there there is a kind of perhaps growing fear, if not a sense, that, you know, she 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 may not be matched to the challenge. And I think that the government needs to counter that very quickly. And as I say, needs to put a credible plan together in the next 10 days, not in the next six weeks. I mean, this is a problem that lots of countries are having. You see lots of debate about it in the United States and in many ways they're much worse off than we are in the, in, in some of what's going on there. Um, they made a dog's dinner of it across the water in the UK a couple of months ago when they tried to make commitments which 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 weren't met. I saw Lara Marlowe reporting from us from France on, on similar problems. But having said all that, Pat, I mean, Jack is absolutely right. You can't wait to unveil a plan till the third week or the fourth week in August. You need to see something and see some financial commitments and see some guidelines and see some directions pretty much now, don't you? And I get no sense that that is at anything like the stage of uh, planning and progress that you would think it has to be at this stage if it is going to go ahead. That said, um, I'm constantly assured that there's lots of work uh, underway on it, even if it's sometimes uh, difficult to see it. But I think it's impossible to overestimate the political importance of this for uh, for the government. Um, You know, most people don't follow the comings and goings of cabinet and myself and Jack will be trying to figure out what's in this stimulus plan today and what happened at cabinet last night. Most people, you know, they don't follow the comings and goings of, of, of politics like that. But they do pay attention when politics affects their daily lives. So they do they did sit up and take notice uh, about, you know, the lockdown and the easing of the lockdown. And this is the this is the aspect of the lockdown, along with the closure of uh, businesses that affects most people in uh, in the country. And I think they will be tuned into this right throughout August, whether they're on holidays in Greenland uh, or whether they're down in Ballinskelligs, I think, uh, or whether they're sitting at home wondering if they should be going to Dunn's or Tesco's getting the uniforms uh, for the kids because they've grown out of the ones uh, that they last wore in February or early March. Um, I, I think people will be focused in on this. And I think if the government doesn't deliver on it, uh, I think the political consequences will be uh, will be enormous. Is it possible for them to deliver a reopening of the schools in to a sufficient degree that uh, that keeps people happy? I don't know. Um, you would have thought not without the cooperation of the teachers unions and the expenditure of very significant amounts of extra money. But neither of those two things should be beyond politics. Whether they are beyond this government, uh, I think we'll see in the coming weeks. Finally, and it's kind of telling in itself that it's the final uh, item uh, on the agenda. Normally, if you had a coalition government and one of the government parties was in the midst of a of a leadership election um, and that election was due to take place or be finalised or the result was due to be not finalised this week, it might be the first item on the agenda. So, Pat, this is a very low-energy green leadership election, isn't it? There's something slightly surreal about it. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, there's something slightly surreal about having a leadership election after you've just had your most successful election uh, in the history of your party anyway. But, you know, they're the Greens uh, rules and they've uh, they've explained that. Uh, there's also the fact that this is taking place amongst relatively small group of people, a couple of thousand Green members. Um, we were all taken hugely by surprise, not that the Green members, these same Green members who are entitled to vote in this election, we were all taken by surprise at the margin by which they approved the programme for government. Um, so what is going on with those members now? It's very difficult uh, to tell. Um, my colleague, uh, Harry McGee, who keeps a very close eye on, uh, on on these things, tells me that the last time he checked in on it some days ago, it seemed that turnout was uh, was on the low side. Impossible, really, to say how that's going to uh, how that's going to affect things. One view is that that makes a close outcome uh, more likely. I would have thought perhaps that means that those opposed to Eamon Ryan's leadership after their and opposed to coalition after their uh, thumping in the vote on the programme for government might be rather too demoralised or disinterested uh, to try and oust him as leader. Um, I think it would be, notwithstanding the lack of any hard information to go on, I think it would be a bit of a shock if Eamon Ryan was to uh, was to lose. It would certainly be a jolt to the leadership of the government. And if the kind of confusion at the top of government in recent days uh, tells us anything. I think it tells us that the construction of a strong centre in this government is something that is very much uh, a work in progress, uh, to put it kindly. And I think that that construction of that strong centre within government would probably be set back by a change of leader in the Greens. Um, That having been said, Catherine Martin campaigned for uh, the deal. Uh, I think it certainly won't destabilise the government, uh, you know, to a dangerous degree uh, if uh, if she wins, but it certainly would add to the uncertainty that the government is facing in the coming days and weeks um, in relation to all those issues that we've just discussed. And finally from you, Jack, I mean, if, if Pat is right and if it's more likely that Eamon Ryan wins, how many tea leaves can be read in the cup of a narrow victory versus a uh, comfortable victory, say a 52% to 48% as opposed to a over 60% for Eamon Ryan? Um, well, I, I think, first of all, I, I think it is it is more likely that, that Eamon Ryan wins. But, you know, I, I think Catherine Martin has a relatively strong hand to play here. You know, she... She campaigned for the program for government, but she had plenty of surrogates, including her husband, who were campaigning against it. You know, so I don't think that it's it's a. I think that wing of the party that was against the program for government has nowhere else to go in terms of its voting in a two horse race. Uh, and I think that she's probably she's a strong enough candidate to pick off some of the of the Ryan supporters. Um, in that you know she is she's articulate, she's smart, she's woman, she's not from Dublin, even though she represents a Dublin constituency, and she doesn't as 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 so insofar as we've seen so far anyway, uh, she doesn't have the kind of Eamon Ryan foot and mouth propensity, you know, to to go off or say say something silly in the doll or fall asleep in the doll or you know talk about reintroduction of wolves or something like that, which I think may 
may appeal to people. Um, but on on the balance of things, I think I think Eamon Ryan probably will be the leader. You know, I I, I think and I think that the strength of that victory, um, it kind of doesn't matter in some ways, you know, like because his 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 leadership will be so solidified then thereafter. And um, what won't go away will be some of the the simmering resentment that is quite clearly there in the Green Party at the moment. Like it, it was it was a fractious debate over a programme for government that ultimately was comfortably passed, but it opened up wounds that haven't healed yet. And there's ongoing allegations and issues around the treatment of, of some councillors and, you know, the, the bullying word has been thrown around. So I think that, you know, no matter who wins the the race, but particularly if it's Eamon Ryan, we'll have to kind of triage that situation and pay attention to it. Otherwise, you'll have a, a, a kind of small but active rump of the party that is, you know, uh, grumbling about his leadership, if not actively trying to undermine it, um, and and that that wouldn't be good for for the stability of the Green Party and and then for the stability of the government thereafter. And we'll be getting that result, I understand, on Friday evening. I think it's uh, I think it's right to say. Um, we shall leave it there. Thanks indeed to Pat and to Jack for joining us. Thanks to our producer Suzanne Brennan and to our engineer JJ Vernon. Uh, before we go, may I gently encourage you as always, if you have not already done so, to go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for unlimited access to the Irish Times for the introductory price of just one euro for the first month. And if you do want to get in touch with us, we'd be delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.